All right, so this is going to be the message today. It's, it's installment three point like four or five, because we've talked about it on Tuesdays a couple times. And the first week you guys were here, I think I raised this question of innocence. And so good to see you again, by the way. I love your kids. They're awesome. Um, so anyhow, identifying your source of innocence, and I'm going to do a review. And it'll have to be quick, but it's a complicated slide. Good, I got it on the back. Uh, if you remember, when I looked at the concept of innocence in the Scripture, I was expecting something fairly direct and straightforward in relationship. Hi. Fairly direct and straightforward in uh, in the relationship with the words. But what I found was a bunch. Uh, the, the majority, as a matter of fact, so far I found ten, I think. Um, but the majority were words of negation, meaning when innocence or something that was coupled with innocence, like blameless and innocent or something along those lines, in the New Testament, uh, when, when that was talked about, the majority of time it was talked about by a word that has a negation in it, and it, it's not something. So this is the first group. I think there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight there. Um, it's one of the, 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 the first group... So basically, no penalty, no mixture, not mingled, not worthless, no blame, fault, or blemish, unaccused, unreprovable, unsoiled, unstained, undefiled, no crime or charge. Uh, And obviously, sometimes those things, depending on the translation, uh, there's liberty in the translator's minds to translate it as guiltless, for instance, like no charge or whatever. And then uh, no fault or no blame. I found another one, and it's... uh, Aspilioi, and it means unspotted or untainted, and it particularly applies to an untainted character. Uh, so it's similar to the one up there, uh, Amiantos. But the nuanced differences in here really caught my attention. I thought it was pretty cool. And, and I started saying, wow, okay, so there's a reason that the Holy Spirit inspired these types of descriptions and then down here, there's one that is not a negation. And it's the only one I've found so far that is ever translated innocent. And it's dikaios, dikaios. And it's part of the, like, dikaiosune family, the dikai family, uh, uh, and it deals with righteousness. So what I wanted you to see, now in the, in the Old Testament, there's, uh, there's three words that are like ceremonially clean or innocent blood but they're mostly revolving around the ceremonial stature of somebody. They're not used in hugely moral terms as much as they are in the New Testament or, you know, that type of thing. But anyway, I wanted you to consider something, and I I brought it up last week, and I'm going to reiterate the point. The point is, if you look at all the boldface words on the negation, the ones that are in the yellow and the green, penalized or penalty, mingled, worthless, blame, accusing, soiled, defiled, uh, a, a charge against you, fault. These are not real things. All right. If I was... If I heard me say that the first time and I didn't explain, I would probably disagree. But what I mean by that is that these are things that are manifestations of 
stuff like brokenness, darkness, fruit of the fall. And they don't actually have substance, enduring substance of their own. Like a shadow doesn't. So in a sense, a shadow's real, because uh, you can see it being cast over there, you know, by the wall where the door light comes in. But it's not real in, in the sense I want you to think about reality. And we're going to have to make some decisions about what sort of value we attribute to reality and certain kinds of reality. So, even though all of us have probably experienced these kind of negatives in our life, the Scripture says in 1 John that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And in my investigation in the New, New Testament especially, there's four places that, and, and if you've been here, you've heard this, I say it all the time, but there's four places where the word God is, is followed by a noun. There's a couple other adjectives and a couple other adverbs and descriptors, but there's four instances that, that tell who and what God is. In John chapter 4, Jesus uh, says to the woman at the well that God is spirit. In Hebrews chapter 12, I think, might be 13, uh, I think it's 12, I don't know. Anyway, it says God is fire. And there's a modifier, but it modifies fire, not God. So it, it, God is a consuming fire. Then in 1 John chapter 1, the scripture says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then the pied de resistance is in John chapter 4, and it says two times for twice the value and twice the significance that God is love. Love. God is love. All right. So, because reality flows from God in creation and in definition. That's why I'm saying that these things that have found a place in his created order and in time that aren't substantial, they don't have substance, they're not really eternally real. And I think if I add the word eternally, you can probably understand why I'm saying that. And it makes it easier to understand, I would think. Because if there's no darkness in God, then the eternity in which God is the light of the new heavens and the new earth, and He's the center of all that, and all of us, He's in our midst and we're with Him, there's not going to be anything real there that is commensurate with what we experience as darkness or shadows or things like that. Okay? So just think about it. Just think about it. Now, we're in a world where darkness and shadows are real. We're in a place that, in one place in Scripture, is characterized as the domain of darkness. But it also says that He has transferred us or conveyed us, lifted us out of the domain of darkness, the, the place where darkness has some measure of authority and some measure of control. He's lifted us out of that into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And God is love, and so the kingdom of the Son of His love is real. It's eternally real. It's enduring. It's going to keep going on and on and on. And so what I want us to think of is that those things over there from 
uh, the green one up, even though what they're talking about is a real thing. It's innocence contrasted against every accusation the enemy could throw at us, every self-doubt, every stumble, every criminal thing, all these kind of things. They, they are of darkness. This contrast is being made with things that are of darkness. And therefore, when we are giving those things an appropriate amount of weight, it doesn't make sense to me that we should assign eternal weight or eternal value to them in our expectations and in our definitions. I don't expect to go to heaven and deal with penalties. I don't expect to go and walk the streets of the New Jerusalem with double-mindedness and mixed junk, confusion, and so on going in me. I don't expect to uh, have to scoot sideways when I see someone coming because I feel worthless. You see what I'm saying? I don't think that heaven's made of that. I don't think it's designed to have a place for that. Hey, Stephen. And so, same thing. Uh, I don't think we'll be soiled, stained. I don't think we'll be scarred. I don't think we'll be marked. And so, as we are evaluating these things, we need to be careful and not assign them the same value that being loved has or assign them the same value of, of the Spirit or the same value of light. And I think we're tempted to do it all the time. I think that when you read about the accuser, uh, about Satan, the devil, being judged at the end of the book of Revelation, what he's judged for it's two things, if I recall. He's judged for deceiving and accusing the saints. I think the reality that, that, that causes us to cringe and to, to, to turn and to embrace shame and to feel defiled is one of the deceptions. And he's begging us to add value to it. And I think we have to be careful to do that. Okay? So that's just what we're going to think about. Now, down here though, the one that speaks about innocence, purity, the one that when the centurion said, this is uh, uh, surely an innocent man, speaks about justice and speaks about righteousness. Righteousness is, is of eternal substance. Right? In, uh, in 2 Peter, it says, uh, I think it's 2 Peter, yeah. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Then we get the description of that, that uh, heavenly Jerusalem. And it says that there's uh, no night there and the sun and the moon don't have to shine because the, the Lord God is the light and the Lamb is on the throne. And so the, the attributes that belong exclusively to God and that are being passed into us in Christ, illuminate that place, and there won't be any of this stuff there. But righteousness will be there. Because the new heaven and the new earth is a place where righteousness dwells. Now what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is if, uh, and, and I'm open to, to chat later, uh, I'm open to chat later about that with anybody, and, uh, and you're welcome to to disagree, you're welcome to bring up some other points. 
And if we have time tonight, we'll even open the mic to do that. But I think that we are so conditioned to these things that are designed to rob us and threaten our innocence in Christ. We think those things are so real and we have so much evidence that we've allowed to accumulate in our life and we've assigned value to that we have a difficult time because of that actually recognizing and honoring reality. And therefore we make up various realities that fit how our day felt, how our life felt, how our disappointments felt, and all that kind of stuff. The Scripture says all kinds of things about stuff like that. It says, for instance, that hope doesn't disappoint. But most of us have a life experience, at least one, that would seem to argue against that. And so I think what this calls for is not further deep analysis. I think it calls for a childlike faith to say, well, I guess that's what faith is for. Faith is the evidence of the things hoped for and the substance of the things unseen. And so what are we supposed to use our faith for if it's not to believe the truth against the lie? Okay? All right. So we want to identify the source of our innocence. And in in light of what I just said about believing the truth, what I want us to, to pay attention to is the Bible speaks pretty clearly about the source of our innocence. And I think when we just look at a couple of scriptures, probably I, I think I've got three of them here if I can get to them. Um, it'll give us enough to make a determination of where we should apply our faith. Because our faith should be believing in the things, whether we see it or not, in the, in the you know, can conjure up a bunch of evidence over the last three days of our life. So, a believer's innocence restored, this is my statement, is either the work of Jesus in obedience to the Father, or it is ultimately our responsibility. I can't think of any other two possibilities. Our innocence restored is either something that was, is accomplished by Jesus under the instruction, direction, and ascending of the Father, or it's our responsibility. And in some of our conversations that we've had in the last few days, or a few weeks, a couple weeks, it's hard to understand where to put that sense of responsibility towards our own innocence. And so the question is, what can we believe? Yes, sir? What about the Holy Spirit? Uh, The Holy Spirit's working in us to make room for Jesus to fulfill what the Father's doing. Because I would think the Holy Spirit would have a big part in me understanding mm-hmm. my innocence. Sure, sure. Leading us into all truth. Yeah. Uh, like in John 16. No, no, here's a second. Yeah, leading us into all truth. Uh, making literal room so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. Um, there's, we do underestimate, I think, the role of the Spirit. Uh, she no. or he was missing on that prior slide. On the prior slide? Yeah, you said Jesus only. You didn't. Well, okay, but I'm not trying to disallow the work of the Holy Spirit. So, like I said, we wouldn't have room in our lives for Jesus to do the work and bring the things he does if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 3. We wouldn't know him. Uh, He wouldn't live in our hearts by faith. So, okay? Okay. All right. 
All right, we're going to look at this scripture first. We looked at it uh, a little bit. First Corinthians 3 9. Sorry. Could you repeat oh. the first slide? Because I didn't go inside my. I didn't the first grab. slide. Which first slide? The first slide. Back. Yeah, about obedience. Uh, Next. Yeah. That one? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. The bottom one. Okay. Uh, I think there's only two options for us to attribute the source of our restored innocence to. One would be the work of God, which would include, as Ronnie pointed out, the Holy Spirit making room for Christ to be in our life, and the Father sending the Son, and Jesus revealing the Father, and the Holy Spirit bringing us, uh, teaching us all truth and leading But the work of God, restoring our innocence and making us aware of it. And, and, and then the other would be our responsibility. Me making my, you know, me restoring my own innocence somehow. Okay, does that make sense? Cool, that's good, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to read this one real quick, but I'm going to jump just to the highlighted part. Um, and what I want you to see is that this scripture, I think, lays out um, where our restored innocence comes from and, and what it is, in a sense, and I'll, I'll get that there. So grace to you and peace, and here's a part of where it comes from. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ronnie, you can take the same question up with Paul. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ. So now do you see this exchange beginning to happen? Something is coming from God, characterized as grace, by grace, and it's being given to us, and it is specifically in Jesus. That in everything... You, me, we were enriched. In Him, not just randomly, we were enriched in Christ. That's something we got to keep in mind as we move forward. In all speech, in all knowledge. Now, if we didn't think this way and slow down and break those things out, we have a very strong possibility of thinking that speech and knowledge is like reasoning and learning that we're accustomed to doing, and that somehow grace just enables us to be smarter than we were before. But I think that misses a point and, and puts us in a somewhat of a dangerous position, because what I believe this means is that there is a gift flowing into us in Christ from the Father by the Spirit that transforms and enriches us including in these areas of knowledge and language, okay? Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now, I don't fully know what that means, but I get a hint out of it that something is actually happening in us as a result of the will of the Father, the sending of the Son, and, and all this kind of stuff, that this is really happening in us and it's being confirmed. And some of those moments of confirmation strike me as ones we mistake for moments of initiation or moments of happening. So, for instance, when I woke up at the tender young age of 14, 14 years, 11 months, and three weeks, to the fact that I needed God, I think I was tempted to think that was the first time that something happened between me and him. 
And I think that's wrong. I think he had had his eye in me, on me, around me, his spirit working on me before that. And I think if we don't think that way, and, and there's a lot of reasons not to, you know, the way our theology is and just the way we think basically in linear fashion. So anyhow, so things are confirmed in us so that you're not lacking in any gift. Now, what are we not lacking in? Something that was given to us. Not something that we manufactured or earned. Something that was given to us. All right? So that you're not lacking in a gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless. Now, this is just a simple one. Who is going to confirm whom? Us. So we are the recipients of the confirmation. He is the confirmer. If you have a Catholic background, Tim, I'm sorry to say, you really weren't confirmed by, by the priest or the church when you were going through confirmation. Not to say that wasn't something good that the Lord was using. I'm sure it was. But we need to, we need to be a little more conscious of where we're assigning authority and value. Okay? Uh, who will also confirm you to the end. To the end. Ooh, that's interesting. Meaning he's in this for the long haul with us. Meaning we're not, uh, we're not just flopping around on a maybe, maybe yes, maybe no kind of situation. He's, he's after us. He's committed to us. Okay? Uh, in the day of the Lord Jesus, 701. I thought it said 710 and I was going to go, oh, bummer. Uh, God is faithful. Are you faithful? Not always. I have to admit that. I can be distracted. I can be discouraged. Alan and I were talking before church that we can even have pity parties. I'm not proud of it. There is something that needs to be repented over, and thank God, I think, at least I believe so, I am way quicker to repent and get out of it. They're measured in minutes, not months. But He is faithful. He is the source. Okay? He's the source. In the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were called. Again, what we do is respond. What he does is initiate. Right? He's the one that issues the call. I didn't call myself. I didn't call myself up to him. He initiated that call uh, into... Amen. Fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In that last sentence, verse eight, there that's not really, it's more or nine. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one, our Lord, the Messiah, our, our Lord. All the authority in that verse is in Him. All the authority flowed into Him from the Father calling us and sending us. Calling us and sending Him, I mean. Okay? All right. Can you see and hear the source here? Just begin to try to differentiate in your mind because you're going to be tempted by the enemy and by your own flesh to think that you are the source of a lot of things. That really Jesus is. All right. Here's another one. Ephesians 5, 25-27. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So you can see why I chose this on the idea of restored innocence, right? Holy and blameless. And before I go to the highlighted slide, nod or smile or raise your hand or make some noise. If the first time we read through that, you could begin to sort of see the distinction between us and the source of these things that were coming. Even though he's using an illustration of husbands and wives. Some of you see it? Okay. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up. And who's the beneficiary of that giving up? Her, the church. So this isn't just an individual gift. It's not just an individual component to you and I. It is a a church-wide situation. Okay? Gave himself up for her so that, so that, now tell me, who's going to do the sanctifying? So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her. Now, I'm all, for, I'm all for washing when I'm dirty, and I think that there is a reality to the fact of, if you read in Revelations, it talks about the bride um, having made herself ready, uh, and, and by putting on these uh, white linens, whatever that means in apocalyptic language, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. So I'm not for us, I mean, I'm not against us, embracing and participating and experiencing our part in this fellowship with him. But I do want to, at least for this season in our talk, I want us to realize that he's the one that is the sanctifier. And I came in in, through a a church movement, uh, denominational movement, where sanctification was the word that we chose to use for me cleaning up and living more like Jesus, more in alignment with Him. I'm all for cleaning up and living more like Jesus, but I don't want to confuse that with the sanctifying work that He alone can do by His Spirit. Okay? By the washing of water with the Word, I'll be honest with you, I used to think I know what that meant. I'm not sure I do right now. I I don't think it just means that uh, he supervised the canon of the Scripture, and if we spend enough time in it, we'll be clean. Because before the canon was there, Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 14 and 15 and said, you're already, I think it's 15, you're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. So I think that he's speaking. And I do think a lot of it comes through here, but I don't think all of it is restricted to coming through there. So um, I'll beg ignorance on that, and that's why it's in white, and I can't make any deal out of it. Um, But here's why he's doing all that he's doing there. That he might present to himself the church. So again, I know this is getting redundant now, right? So who is presenting the church? He is. And who is he presenting the church to? Himself. Which probably includes the Father by the Spirit, the whole, you know, the thing going on. But, but 
he's doing stuff by his own will under the, the, the sending, the impetus of the Father by the Spirit, and we are the church, we are the big beneficiary of it. We are the recipients of it. We are passive partners in a sense. Uh, active, but not originators. I'm not saying passive like we just sit around and wait for nothing to happen. I'm just saying that we, we are in some ways like a person sitting in the, driver, in the passenger seat of the car. We chose to get in there, and there's things we need to do, like buckle our seatbelt and you know, engage in conversation and be a part of it and enjoy the scenery and all this kind of stuff. But we're not the ones that are driving, and we're not the, the, the mo- locomotion that's moving us forward. Okay? That he might present himself to church, now here we go, in all her glory. Now I think we're going to experience the all there of, of, of her glory, but he's the one doing the presenting. He's the force. He's the force that's going to allow the church to manifest her glory. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And I, this sounds really elementary now that I'm saying it, and I'm being kind of repetitive. But it's not just her glory. It's having no spot or wrinkle. So now that takes us back to the, the screen when I was talking about the negation words for, for innocence. So no spot, no wrinkle, no mark, no defamation, none of these things. Uh, no, no corruption, no guilt, no accusations. He's going to clean. He is going to make those things of naught. He is doing that. And there's a way that we participate in it. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But having no spot or wrinkle. And then look how broad this is. Or any such thing. What? Yeah, even some weird, uh, selfish, ignorant, perverse thing that I might come up with. Or that the church might get into. He's going to take responsibility for that. He is presenting with a view to overcoming even that goofy stuff we did during the shepherding movement, even that strange stuff we did on Manifest Destiny, even the the other strange doctrines that I'm old enough to have been a material participant in. See what I'm saying? Any such thing. Any such thing. Wow. But that she would be holy and blameless. She would be the way she is created to be, the way God has seen her to be from the beginning. Holy and blameless. Of eternal substance. Not that other stuff. Not that any other thing you think about. Okay? So who is taking responsibility for our presentableness in this scripture? Simple answer, right? Jesus is. No question about it. No question about it. And who is taking responsibility for the church's blamelessness? Jesus is. Jesus is. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a role, and I'm not saying we don't need to uh, uh, identify that role and, and, and believe into that and obey into that. But what I'm saying is, that is that's different than the core basic responsibility for something. Jesus is taking that. And he's taking that, I believe, to the glory of the Father. But he's also taking it to the glory, all her glory, having no spider wrinkle, of you and I in the church. Okay? 
right? So it's, he's got this double glory thing going on. All right, here's one more look. This is Colossians 1, 21-23. We looked at that last week. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. All right, let's jump to here. Something about us is that we were formerly that thing. Yet now He has reconciled us. Who reconciled us? He did. And He not only did it, He did it in Himself, in His own fleshly body. The thing that went, and, and I think we need, to, we need to pay attention to this, there was a time when the, the, when the Spirit and, 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 and God on this earth incarnate had a, an arm span and a measurement from his head to his feet. And he had depth this way. And that is what he reconciled us in. Hebrews says that uh, it's through the, the veil of his body. So he had utter control over himself, which he yielded to the hatred of men and got into that deep, dark place where we were prepared to commit deicide to reconcile us. Paul says it in Second uh, Corinthians this way. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against them or sins against them. And then he goes on to say, to our part, therefore be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. But if you break that down slowly, you're a person who was formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and he in Christ reconciled you, not counting the alienation and hostility in mind and, and evil deeds against you. And so now you're a person who has been forgiven. He has mercy on us. If we look at it in terms of the new covenant, uh, all those things that God promises that uh, he's going to put it, the law in our hearts and write it in our minds, he's going to be our God. We're going to be his people. Uh, that um, everyone is, no one's going to have to say no uh, to their neighbor, know the Lord, because all will know him, and the least the greatest, because, for is the word, it means because, because I'm going to have mercy on your transgressions and your lawless deeds I won't remember anymore. Now, one thing I want to point out to you that that's a big deal. If you remember your sins, that they have the ability to have an impact on you. If you forget your sins, that has ability to have an impact on you too. But neither of those two rememberings or forgettings are in any way qualified to be compared to what goes on in God's mind. Because if he forgets them, they are forgotten. That's reality. The memory you have of it is a reality of a much lower order. It's a reality that does not have the ability to live and carry its darkness into eternity. And we need to start distinguishing that. We need to start making, making sense of that. Okay, so although you were formerly alienated, hostile mind, engaged in evil deeds. Oh, I went back. Uh, again, we're back in the same situation. Why did he reconcile us? How did he reconcile us in his fleshly body? Why? in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, if we were to skip down a few verses, it gets down there and Paul talks about this mystery that's been hidden from the ages past, but is now being revealed by God. And that mystery is released to the Gentiles. And he's preaching about it and telling them about it and showing them it and manifesting it. And the mystery is this. Christ in Cornelius. Remember the story of Cornelius? Peter came there, all prepped with his sermon. It's wrong for me to, as a Gentile, come into your house and blah, blah, blah. And he's all set to honor this guy because they said uh, he was an almsgiver and an honorable man, helped the Jews. And before Peter could even get his ducks in a row and get his mouth to lay them all out, Holy Spirit manifest, fell on them. They began speaking in tongues, just like his buddies. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was, that was a manifestation of that, a visible reality. So, oop, got to back up, sorry. Now, uh, in some of our conversations, as we've been talking about innocence, this next verse came up. And so, I have plenty of time. Thank you, Jesus. If indeed, okay, so in other words, and, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you. That's an affirmative statement sealed in time. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. We know when that happened, right? On the cross, uh, through death, in order to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. There's nothing in there that uh, is conditional as to our choice. Jesus just chose to do all those things, right? But here, is this conditional? And is this enough of a condition to confuse where the source of our innocence is. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. All right, so here goes. I'm going to get in the weeds with you a little bit. Here's the question. Is Jesus' success at restoring the innocence of father's children really and completely dependent on those broken children. In other words, if that if that verb verse, if that verse is a, an absolute condition, if you continue in the faith, firmly established and unmoved, then the condition of success of all that Jesus did as the source in coming, in the incarnation, and in the crucifixion. It really depends on the reaction of broken children. Now, I'm not saying that the reaction of broken children isn't important. I'm not saying it doesn't have a big impact on things. But I'm saying, do you... And you can just ask yourself this question. You don't necessarily have to answer it right away. But do you believe that his, the success of his work that he did to the glory of the Father in response to the Father sending him, also in response to literally being the Lamb slain before anything was ever created, right? Before the foundation of the world. Do you believe, does it make sense to you, that the God of this universe would put the success of the Father's wishes for his children in the hands, ultimately, of the broken children themselves? Okay, 
So I'm not going to beat you up with that question, but I think it's worth thinking about. All right, so how conditional is Jesus as the source of our innocence in this verse, if indeed, if indeed. All right, so I'm not enough of a Greek scholar to stand here and pull on my beard and tell you guys with absolute assurance that uh, thus and so. But here's, uh, here's a look at this in the uh, Word Study Dictionary, which is one of the lexicons I use. And I did pick this one because of what it said. Uh, I didn't cherry pick it because of what it said. It's just that this is such a commonly used, this egi, uh, it's a combination of two words that means if or since. Okay? And, uh, it, and so this is a, it just makes it, the definition make a little bit of sense. Uh, it's New Testament 1489 in Strong's, egi. And it's a particle composed of um, the EI there in Greek. That's 1487. And that equals if. And the GI is 1065, which means indeed. And so here's what this lexicon dictionary says about it. It says a particle of emphasis or qualification, meaning, and here are some of the meanings that it's translated as, if at least, if indeed, or if so be. And when it's followed by the indicative, it speaks of what is taken for granted, which is why occasionally it's translated since instead of as a purely conditional either or if. So it's the indicative. Does anybody here know what the indicative means in grammar? All right, I don't really totally either. But I do know this. I know in that verse... You continue is in the indicative. Those words are in the indicative in Greek. And the egi is followed by the indicative. So there is an assumption, potentially, if these guys are telling the truth, which I think they are, if, if there is an assumption that because that is followed by the indicative, that the if indeed is something that is assumed, something that is assured. The uh, passage down there in Ephesians 3.2 is a passage where Paul says, if indeed you heard about my stewardship of the gospel among the Gentiles. That wasn't, that's not really uh, a what-if type of statement. He is using that statement to reinforce his authority to reinforce the gospel to those people. So, um, let me read it one more time. This word... Uh, if indeed, Agi, is um, a particle of emphasis or qualification, meaning if at least, if indeed, if it be so. And when followed by the indicative, and spoke, it is spoken of what is taken for granted. And I believe that it is legitimate to explore the possibility that this is not a conditional if, but it is a if indeed you have done this. Okay. Now, there's a very uh, notable uh, Jonathan Mitchell Bible scholar that translated the New Testament that does that. So, this is a very complicated slide. I apologize for being that way. So, the way his translation, the, the, the background to Jonathan Mitchell's translating is that he takes as many phrases and words as he needs to try to capture in line in the paragraph the essence of the Greek word. 
Okay, that's what his, if you read his thing about how he translates. So this is how that verse is translated there. And you can tell he uses a lot more words than the one in the New American Standard. So since in fact, so first I'm going to read it by just the boldface white, because these others are comments on alternative type of readings that that could have. But let me just read the, uh, the boldface. Since in fact you folks are continually remaining on by trust in the faith and for loyalty, being ones having been provided with a foundation so as to continue grounded, even seated, so as to be settled ones, and not people being repeatedly moved elsewhere away from the expectation pertaining to, belonging to, and having its source in the message of ease, goodness, and well-being. That's what he translates the gospel as. In the message of ease, goodness, and well-being of which you heard here, the message being heralded within all creation which is under the sky, of which I, Paul, am myself, come to be a herald, an emissary, and as attending servant. Okay? I know that sounds weird. Let me read it again. Since in fact, so that's the word that he translates Agias. Since in fact, you folks are continually remaining on by trust in the faith and for loyalty, being ones having been provided with a foundation so as to continue grounded, even seated, so as to be settled ones and not people being repeatedly moved elsewhere away from the expectation pertaining to, belonging to, and having its source in the message of ease, goodness, and well-being, quote the gospel, uh, in which you heard here, the message being heralded within all creation which is under the sky, of which I, Paul, and myself come to be a herald, an emissary, and as an attending servant. So I just would, I would, um, I would, like, I would say that the work that Jonathan Mitchell does, I, I find it uh, very, very useful in trying to understand Greek. And on this one, he makes it that sense type thing. And then the very next verse, Paul goes into how proud he is of his own suffering on behalf of these people. He doesn't correct them for abandoning the gospel. He says, I'm, I'm thrilled to be in jail and suffering and so on for what's being revealed in you. So Paul doesn't treat that line like it's a condition that wipes it out. He treats it like an affirmation that, hey, since you're people who are hanging in there with the message of the gospel by faith, I'm pleased to be in jail and to be sacrificed in my life for what's being revealed in you. So I think that it's at least worth considering. And, and then I want to sum up this promise from the Lord. And we'll have a couple minutes for questions. This is in John 17, toward the end of the, uh, the chapter. And if you remember, John 17 is Jesus praying to his Father. And it's one of those passages I give a lot of value to. Because I'm pretty sure he was honest with his Father. And I'm pretty sure he was asking for stuff that he knew was glorifying to his Father. And I was pretty sure that he was loving his disciples in the process of doing it. So it says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them talking about disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The part I want to emphasize in there is that they may become perfectly one. When we talk about sanctification and we talk about fully restored innocence, a lot of times our mind runs to the concept of perfection. 
I do believe that we should expect our lives to be perfected, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. I do not believe that it is the fruit of self-discipline. I'm for self-discipline, but I want to use the majority of my self-discipline not to behave in one way over another. I want to use the majority of my self-discipline to keep looking at Jesus. To keep looking at Jesus and to look back at Him and look back at Him because John in 1 John says that when He appears, we'll be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And if you're acting like a jerk, if you're acting carnal, if you're acting beastly, you're not looking at Jesus and getting away with that. Because what you behold of His face transfers us from glory to glory. And it is a process. It's an incremental process. And it helps to remember that we're children. Because when you're learning something new, like walk, and you fall down, nobody gets disgusted with you. It's not a moral violation that a toddler trips over their own feet. Or an old fart like me, for that matter. But, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so, I'm not writing off perfection. I am absolutely dead set against our tendency to imagine that it's substitutionary, that somehow we get it hiding under the skirts of Jesus. No. You and I are called to be on that journey of perfection by the love of God, by the consuming fire of God, deep into our spirit, so that the day will be when He can look without turning away, and we can look without turning away, and He says, Son or daughter, I find no fault in you. Perfection, don't get me wrong, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. But I'm not taking myself there. He's taking me there. So I'm going to keep my eyes on Him. I think it's the best, I think it's the shortest path to the best end, is what I'm saying. All right. Uh, that they may be one, you know, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that also, uh, that they, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then these last two lines are just incredible. But think about, think about the responsibility that is being taken by Jesus in these. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. The departing line of Jesus' prayer before he goes across the Kidron Valley to surrender and help the, help the Romans arrest him, because they couldn't do it by themselves unless he did. Because they tried once, they all fell down. They just, they just asked who he was, right? So he's preparing now to take charge of his own arrest and sacrifice. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And here's why. That the love that you have for me will be in them too. Same love. That is what transforms us. That love will leave no room for darkness. It won't leave room for accusations or any of those other goofy things. He's the source, and He's the reason. He is the source and the reason. As He leads us, 
we should respond. As he reveals, we should have faith. But we should never lose sight of the fact, nor should we take on ourselves some kind of grotesque sense of personal responsibility because all it will do is pull on the strings of our flesh to try to activate them to do what only he can do. It'll take what should be simple, childlike obedience and trust and turn it into pride and work. He is the source. And he is capable of doing the job. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for your redemptive genius. And Father, forgive us for looking away from it to ourselves too easily and too frequently, for making an idol of our own desires to be perfected, for setting standards for us that mimic you but don't come from you. You apparently are okay with the process of transformation. The moment we recognize we're in one, we get impatient. And we want to take charge of our own transformation and make it happen. And in doing so, we make an idol of ourselves and our progress. Or we come under shame and condemnation because of our lack of it. So I ask in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us and reinforce to us from tonight's look at this who the source is and who the beneficiaries are. And that we would embrace with open arms and whole hearts the sanctification that you are bringing to us through Jesus. Thank you. We love you, Lord. Amen.